We are here today with Dr. Ron Winchell. Dr. Winchell is the Assistant Clinical Professor in Psychiatry at Columbia University, and he is the go-to expert in psychopharmacology, which if you don't know what that is, you're sure going to find out at the end of this episode. It's the study of medication and how those medications influence your mood and your behavior. One of his specialties is anxiety, and I know we can all relate to anxiety these days. Dr. Winchell has spent over a decade as a research scientist. So what he does as a research scientist is he's studied and he's reported on obsessional disorders, um, things that people can obsess about. About He's studied suicidality and self-harm um, are just to name a few. So he's really spent a lot of time researching these disorders. And through that, he's learned a lot about medications, how they work um, within your body. Are they addictive? Are they not? Which ones are better to use sometimes than others? He breaks down the understanding about depression and anxiety and sleep and things like that. Um, Dr. Winchell now, he devotes his full time for private practice and teaching, but I know that you're gonna you're gonna really enjoy this and find that his everything he teaches us is so fascinating. So, Dr. Winchell, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I hope, if you don't mind, I just like to start at the beginning. Can you help us understand what are some different kinds of psych med like psych medications or psych meds or whatever you might call them? I think we get it you know, easily describe them in just a few fundamental categories. But we should also explain the names because the names are a little bit mistaken. For example, antidepressants, extraordinarily frequently used medications. They also treat anxiety very well. They're called antidepressants and not called anti-anxiety drugs, really for historical reasons, not uh, for reasons that suggest that they are limited in the range of what they can do. So antidepressants, which also address anxiety as well. Then we have uh, mood stabilizers. Mood stabilizers are also for mood disorders, but primarily used for people who have forms of bipolar disorder, what used to be called manic depression. So these are two categories of drugs that are both uh, directed at helping mood. Uh, antidepressants uh, will work, will be primarily oriented towards people with uh, straightforward, shall we say, unipolar or simple depression. Mood stabilizers are generally used for people who have bipolar or cycling mood disorders, where they might be up and down and other variations in their mood. Uh, but we overlap in, in both directions. We will sometimes use antidepressants for people who have cycling mood syndromes, and we'll sometimes use mood stabilizers for people who have anxiety disorders and mood disorders. But these are drugs primarily designed for mood disorders and sometimes anxiety disorders, all right? We have drugs that are designed purely for anxiety. Uh, drugs that are all too famous, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, and there are well over 20 drugs in that family of which about half dozen are commonly used uh, in this country. They are very good at directly reducing anxiety, highly effective. They also help with sleep. Unfortunately, they are beset with many potential problems, abuse, dependency, ongoing questions about possible loss of efficacy over time, and a somewhat controversial but important question as to whether or not they can promote dementia when you get older. Um, I uh, favor the reading of the literature that they do not, but that is still somewhat controversial, a very important question. And then we have medicines that are specifically for sleep, okay? 
Uh, the anti-anxiety medications can work for both sleep and anxiety, but we have certain medications that are specifically only for, for sleep. Again, the famous Ambien and related drugs, such as uh, Sonata uh, and Lunesta. There are uh, puts and calls with those medications as well, but they're very specifically for, for sleep. Then there is another category of drugs that's very important, has a very unfortunate name because the name is also historically incorrect at this point or there for historical reasons, but not correct. A typical antipsychotic. Now, doesn't that sound scary? Um, and every time I mention a drug like this to a patient who's not psychotic, where they're often used, I have to go into an explanation. Why do we call them? Well, that's for historical reasons about how these drugs were originally used. But we do use them, yes, indeed, for psychosis. We also use them to stabilize psychic mood disorders. We use them to augment antidepressant effects when drugs uh, that are straightforward antidepressants don't work well enough on their own. We use them for certain anxiety disorders. We even use low doses of the more mild ones for sleep problems. So they get used for a variety of things, but primarily for uh, mood disorders and psychotic disorders. There are other medications in random, in random groups that covers a large mass of that is so interesting. I like how you just put them in these just main buckets, but it almost like, as you say that, then I almost feel like I have more questions for you. So antidepressants work for depression, but they also work for anxiety, but then there's anxiety medicines. So I think, let me know if I'm right, but when you talked about the list of anxiety medicines like Xanax, are those something that you would use in the moment when you're feeling anxious? And then the ones that you talked about that are antidepressants, but also are treat anxiety, are those ones that you're do, do them ongoing? Uh, that's uh, absolutely correct. Very insightful of you. The uh, drugs such as Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, et cetera, they almost inevitably work to some extent. They work rather quickly, sometimes too quickly. A drug that works too quickly can be a problem in terms of encouraging and abuse, but that's another subject. Um, but they work typically rather well and very quickly. Um, so they can be used in an as-needed situation, unlike the antidepressants, which can have very effective anti-anxiety effects, often better, but they take several weeks of continuous use before they kick in. So, and if you need something at the moment because of heightened anxiety, uh, taking an extra dose of an antidepressant will do nothing. Uh, taking an extra dose, if that's how it's prescribed by your physician, of one of these anti-anxiety drugs can work very well. Could you help me understand medications to go back to depression? Um, I often hear people talk about like SSRIs and Prozac and Zoloft are all antidepressants SSRIs or are there different types of antidepressants and what 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 can you okay. help me understand an SSRI okay the, the three second history of antidepressants the first ones were accidental discoveries people were working on medications to treat TB and there was a particular medication that did not uh, treat TB very well except somebody noticed that six weeks later the uh, individuals who were being treated were happier than they were. Now think about it, this was an extraordinarily brilliant observation. There was no history of the idea that chemicals affected your mood and how you thought. So no one, someone had to first come up with that idea. And the idea that a medication gave someone six weeks ago is starting to have an impact now was also probably rather radical at the time. Now that's in the late 1940s. Those are called MAO inhibitors. They're actually probably the best antidepressants we have, but they're complicated to use and there's some safety. 
All right, so those were replaced pretty much by the tricyclics, which mostly came around uh, in the 60s and 70s. Very effective antidepressants. We still use those. Unfortunately, they tend to be kind of side effecting in a slightly day-to-day unpleasant way for many people, and they could be dangerous in overdose. Then in 1988 or so, um, Prozac came around, the great revolution. They were, these, they're safer drugs, much safer. The side effect range was more limited, although we tended to be blissfully unaware for a couple of years that there were a lot of sexual side effects for a great many people, and that uh, some people gained weight on them as well. But otherwise, typically not a lot of side effects, much safer. And because they were much milder, and this is really where the revolution was, and part of, I think, why we're talking now many years later. Before that, it was only the many, much more severe depressions that tended to get treated in this country uh, with medication, in part because of the side effects, in part because of the lack of sophistication in the field and understanding the nature of mild depression, which is there's a lot of mild depression out there. But when Prozac came around, because it was so much safer and gentler, um, and because the field was starting to learn more about low-grade mild depression, suddenly there was this huge expansion, not, not to mention a considerable amount of money and effort put, be, put be, uh, uh, behind it by the drug companies who wanted to market these new drugs that had quite an impact on its reception in the country. Uh, some of it good, some of it not so good. Um, but that's when we saw a real explosion in the use of antidepressants. Now, Prozac was the first SSRI in this country. Um, that was followed by about uh, four others over the course of the next uh, five or six years. And those are the SSRIs. Why? They're called that because their principal effect is directly on the neurotransmitter chemical serotonin. And then a few years later, the first SNRIs appeared. Some of those are well-known drugs like uh, Effexor, Cymbalta, uh, uh, Pristique. Um, now, these drugs are kind of similar in that they also work on the same chemical system, the serotonin system, in a very similar way, but they also bring a second neurochemical system to play, the neurodinergic system. The SSRIs and the SNRIs, in most cases, will typically be the first drug a person might encounter if they're being prescribed a drug for straightforward depression, because of the combination of their efficacy and safety and the fact that doctors know them well and the side effects help. The side effects are often rather mild and doctors know them well and can manage the side effects in most situations. Then there's Wellbutrin and it's in a category by itself. It works a little bit uh, differently on two different neurotransmitter uh, neurotransmitter and a little bit on the dopamine transmitter. Now, as I said, remember, there are many pathways to depression, which is why these drugs with different pharmacologic activities can all work towards treating depression. Uh, Wellbutrin has many advantages, very low side effect profile, no sexual side effects, no weight gain, Questionable in my mind that it, while it can be an excellent drug and perfect for some, I'm, I'm, I'm of the view it doesn't have quite the same track record of success. And it's the only antidepressant that does not treat anxiety, by the way, the only one. Um, so if someone has panic disorder or highly anxious depression, it may not be a great choice. It's a wonderful choice in combination with SSRIs and SNRIs. You know, just like treating hypertension or many conditions in medicine, often one medicine doesn't do it fully. Um, but com- combinations often do it much better. Wellbutrin as an add-on is, is often excellent. Then we have another couple of medications that are on categories, mirtazapine, lovely drug, no sexual side effects, also works pharmacologically differently. Unfortunately, a fair number of people have issues with weight gain and tiredness. Many people don't, but this is sort of where, this is where the art part of, of psychopharmacology enters. How to work out with your patient, which drug is the most acceptable based on your symptoms, your need, which side effects concern you the most, and also to take you gently through the early stages. The drug like mirtazapine, day one, people are often the next day toast, so tired, and yet by the next day, much better. 
So you really need the right relationship with the doctor to be able to sometimes get onto these medications very comfortably and very safely. So another question that I think about a lot is that a lot of people have a hard time sleeping, especially right now during COVID when, you know, we're isolated and um, having a hard time. And then there's over-the-counter medications like um, Tylenol PM or Advil PM, and then you have melatonin, and then you mentioned the sleep medications. Could you help kind of explain sleep? COVID has been horrific, but has provided an opportunity to see so many interesting phenomena. For example, because uh, people are, off, are now often working from home or unfortunately not working, or, and they are not having to commute and can often now structure their schedules more around their inclinations as opposed to the standard necessity of being at a desk at eight or nine a.m. Um, we're seeing people float into what are more natural sleep patterns because of a diminished structure governing your sleep. Um, and the reason I mention this is that uh, common complaint, I can't fall asleep. I'm lying there for an hour and a half. Well, it sounds like what we would call initial insomnia or sleep onset insomnia, right? But that person may have what we call a circadian phase delay, someone who's biologically a night owl. Now, being a night owl, someone who's inclined to stay up and uh, late and work and wake up late, this is so rigidly determined by neurobiology, it is very hard to fight. It is very hard to fight. And it is so strongly uh, genetically uh, determined uh, that very often, if someone has a pronounced uh, circadian phase issue, such as being a pronounced night owl, you'll almost always find that there's a parent who has the same pattern or has been fighting it until wow. you ask them. It's, it's, a, it's extremely strong. Now we have, we have that's a kind of circadian, circadian referring to a 24 hour clock of the body, which governs a lot of things and is very integrated with depression. Um, that is an example of a circadian phase issue. There's a much common, less common form called phase advance. That, that's a phase delay. Phase advance are people who fall asleep earlier in the evening, the person who always wants to like, you know, I'm done with dinner at 8.15, can we go to sleep now? And then wakes up at 4.35 o'clock in the morning, bright eyed and bushy tailed, and has been that first person who can get to the treadmill before anyone else fights them for it at the gym. Now, that's a phase advance. There, there seems to be less of that around. Now, uh, and then, so our shorthand is the night owl, we call night owls, a phrase everyone knows. We refer to the phase advance as, uh, as um, larks who get up singing with the sunrise. And those who are lucky enough to be right in between and kind of really that optimal point, hummingbirds, okay? Now, if your person comes in and says, I can't get to sleep, I think the first thing you have to figure out, are they trying to sleep out of the phase of their neurobiology? Because if you try to fight that with antidepressants, you can, with, I'm sorry, with sleep medications, you might be able to succeed at that, but that's not real easy to do. Unfortunately, not everyone can live a life that's in accord with their neurobiology. And for some people, the phase delay is so extreme, uh, they can't uh, live a life where they go to sleep every night at 4 a.m. and wake up at 12 noon. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of issues there. It's important, but I'm making the point, it's important to really drill down. What is the nature of the sleep problem? Are you having trouble falling asleep? And we can talk about what that means because you don't fall asleep automatically like that most of the time unless you're sleep deprived or have a sleep disorder like sleep apnea. It takes a few minutes to drift off and if not up to half an hour. Um, do you wake up during the night? Well, there are times in life where it's, a, where it's natural to wake up during life briefly as part of normal sleep. It's not insomnia as long as you get back to sleep. 
reasonably quickly. You know, a man in his 50s and 60s has to get up to urinate, the disruptions of sleep that are common after menopause. Um, you know, these are unfortunate disruptions to our sleep, but they're part of natural biology. And if the person gets back to sleep fairly easily, we don't consider it an insomnia, not a reason typically to institute medication. Then a person may wake up too early every morning after only about five an hour sleep, not get back to sleep. So true insomnia, we break into initial insomnia or sleep maintenance insomnia. Having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, many people can have both, one or the other. It starts to get a bit more complicated. Sleep maintenance insomnia, some people wake up two hours after they fall asleep. Other people don't wake up until six and a half hours after they fall asleep, but that's still not enough sleep. Okay, so that's sort of, you know, a a little introduction into the complex uh, issues of sleep. Got to figure out where is the insomnia because our medications are just determined that way. Now, what do our medications do? Do they put us asleep in that wonderful way that had Shakespeare writing sonnets? Not generally. As some experts in sleep are like to say, just because your eyes are closed, you're not conscious. doesn't mean you're asleep. You're just eyes closed and not conscious. Sleep is, occurs in uh, four stages, one, two, three, and REM, REM being dream sleep. Stage three, which used to be called stage three and four, but stage three, um, is the truly restorative stage of sleep, as is REM, but, but more, more three, stage three, okay? It's also called slow wave sleep, which is literally what's happening in the brain. If you didn't EEG, the waves are very slow. That is when you are not only getting your most restorative qualities in terms of you know, what we assume is associated with sleep, not being tired the next day, having your cognitive faculties at its best. That's when you're consolidating memories, which is why the person who's up all night cramming for an exam and gets no sleep is gonna do worse than if they had not crammed and did sleep because they will have forgotten everything they had said anyway and have the cognitive difficulties of sleep deprivation. That's when your body heals very well from tissue injury. We're, we're, spent, we're, we're throwing out lots of growth hormone at that time. Um, it's so important, it's important for cardiovascular health. Slow-wave sleep is crucially important. And one of the big and very important issues in sleep research in the last decade is the realization that disruptions of slow-wave sleep may have a lot to do with why people develop dementia. And this is a very, very important field now of research. Okay, so uh, this is relevant because our sleep medications and our psychotropics have a range of effects on that sleep. For example, you know, if someone takes Ambien, there's a little controversy about Ambien, but probably for slow-wave sleep, it's either neutral or actually improves it a little bit. Well, there's a little disagreement about that. Um, but many of the sleep medications we use, for example, many of the benzodiazepines that we use for sleep will put you to sleep, but they'll diminish the amount of time you spend in slow-wave sleep. That ain't so great. A drug trazodone, which is an old antidepressant, which we don't use as an antidepressant much because it's so sedating in small doses, it's a lovely sleeping pill, non-addictive, no dependency formation, tends to continue to work, quite safe, and keeps and enhances slow-wave sleep without disturbing dream sleep. So it maintains the structure of sleep. You don't want to be just asleep without having the right sleep structure. So what kind of sleeping pills do we have? Okay, once again, we have categories. There's the benzodiazepines, the Xanax family. Big problems with those because they often will lose their efficacy over time. There is a risk of abuse. There is a risk of dependency. Um, these are drugs people can get addicted to if used improperly, and they can be problematic for the structure of sleep. Ambien, a little bit less of a problem, probably better for the structure of sleep. Um, Lunesta is more similar to the Ambien, not typically Cracker Jackets in effectiveness. Then uh, there's Trazodone. So there's a variety of medications that they almost all have their puts and calls, unfortunately. And here's the big thing about sleep. If, if Providence 
was not a great engineer for biomechanics. It's manifest in what happens to sleep over the course of our lifetimes, okay? Because uh, sleep, sleep is changing from the time you're a fetus. You know, you sleep, you know, you sleep in your mother's womb, okay? But it consolidates as you go through the entire life and keeps shifting. Every parent has watched the consolidation of their infant's sleep, you know, from no, seemingly no order to get becoming ordered. Teenagers, it is unfortunate that our, that our uh, culture likes to have teenagers get up early in the morning to go to school because teenagers have a normal phase delay, which lasts into their early 20s. They need, their brains want to go to sleep later. Their brains want to wake up later. It's not merely that they just want to you know, stay up under the blankets with the iPad. It's what their, brain, it's what their brains do, and they, like a, and they need a lot of sleep. Um, so that's one sleep pattern. So a teenager who's not falling asleep at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. as the parent likes, that may end up being a problem if they have to get up so early they don't get enough sleep. But that's not an insomnia and it's not necessarily willful. Their brains don't particularly want to go to sleep. Then you get into some nice long plateau in your 20s, 30s to 40s where, you know, oh, I can't sleep for 18 hours on the weekend anymore. God damn it. Yeah, your brain won't sleep so long anymore, but you start to appreciate it's nice to have things done by 11 a.m. on a Saturday and still have the day to enjoy yourself. And then sleep continues. You get into your 50s. For men, there are often issues of prostate enlargement needing to get up to urinate. Women start having postmenopausally associated um, sleep issues. And as we get older, for most people, the sleep does not hold on to continuous deep sleep. So the problem is everyone's gonna have some challenges with sleep at some point in their life, for most people. These sleeping pills are very inviting. This is why it's such a challenge. There are none of them that's perfect. I mean, I do like Trazodone a lot, but most of the others have puts and calls and it's so easy and, 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 and tempting to abuse them. People start using sleeping pills for insurance. Well, I don't know if I'm having trouble sleeping tonight, but I have this important meeting. I wanna be able uh, to sleep well. You know, recent research in England showed that one third of sleeping pills in England are consumed for that purpose. Unfortunately, that leads to a lot of abuse and too much use and loss of efficacy. So dealing with, now, we haven't mentioned the non-pharmacologic approach, which is very important. There are cognitive approaches to sleep. I recommend anyone who with sleep trouble consider downloading a free app made by the VA system, by the way, to treat people with PTSD called CBTI. CBT for cognitive behavioral therapy, I for insomnia. Free app made by the VA system in California. Actually, it's been cleared in some way I don't understand by the FDA and is definitely efficacious for helping a lot of people with sleep. Thank you so much, Dr. Winchell. You are like just brilliant. Just a, I mean, you took every question I threw at you and you had an incredible articulate answer. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk to the world about this. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, drop us a review. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast for the latest episodes. For the latest insights, check us out at psychhub.com.